Since the advent of the AIDS virus in the early 80s, hundreds of pathologists, virologists, and microbiologists have strived to find a treatment, cure, or vaccine for this disease. Never in our history has there been such a unilateral response to a single epidemic. Billions of dollars are being spent daily throughout the world in an effort to find the miracle cure. David Baltimore, a renowned AIDS expert, has said that it'll probably be the single most important public health problem of the next decade. Many experts agree and state that if major reforms are not implemented immediately, AIDS could very well become the greatest threat to the human race. The Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, defines AIDS as a combination of signs, symptoms, and illnesses resulting from a suppressed immune system. The diagnosis of AIDS requires one or more indicator diseases. Certain criteria may require laboratory evidence of HIV or human immune virus infection, the virus which is said to be the cause of AIDS. Four to 12 weeks after exposure to HIV, the infected individual may develop signs of acute infection, including bacterial infections, candidiasis, cytomegalovirus, herpes, Carposis sarcoma, lymphoma, microbacterium avium, pneumocystis carini pneumonia, syphilis, toxoplasmosis, and wasting syndrome. After primary infection or seroconversion, that is being converted from HIV negative to positive, the progression from HIV positive to full-blown AIDS could take many years, while some who test positive have yet to show any symptoms. Typically, the progression from HIV positive to AIDS takes about 78 months. From first testing positive to the virus, the patient then develops symptoms of chronic lymphadenopathy, immune dysfunction, skin defects, and finally, a systemic immune deficiency or AIDS. Nowadays, there are numerous tests for HIV, including the ELISA or enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay and the Western blot. Some of the main tests that we use in HIV uh, would be, number one, the HIV test, uh, which, which we do in this lab. Uh, there's the ELISA, which is a screening test, uh, which is very, very sensitive. In fact, it's, it's so sensitive that some people that aren't even infected by the HIV, that just have something that looks like HIV in their blood, would turn positive on this test. So we take everybody that tests positive on this, and we do a more specific test called the Western blot. And that lets somebody know for sure if they're infected by HIV that it wasn't a false positive test. The most recent test for HIV is called the polymerase chain reaction test, or PCR. This test claims to be far more accurate than the Western blot or ELISA. However, because of its complexity, it is more expensive. The first cases of AIDS dates back as far as 1979 in Africa and 1981 in America. However, it was not until the 23rd of April, 1984, when this disease was officially termed AIDS by Robert Gallo and Luke Montagier, who had found a virus which they called HTLV-3. The latest statistics from the World Health Organization, dated December of 1992, estimate the number of people infected worldwide. AIDS is said to have spread to approximately 1.5 million children and at least 9 to 11 million adults around the globe.
This totals in at least 10 to 12 million people infected with AIDS worldwide. Also, an estimated 2 million adults and more than 500,000 children have reached the last stage of HIV infection. Developing countries account for over 90% of all new infections, while over 4 million women have become infected with AIDS since the start of the epidemic. In the United States, the World Health Organization estimates that over 2.5 million people are infected with AIDS, while in Sub-Saharan Africa, where AIDS is said to have originated, it is estimated that there are more than 6.5 million people infected. These figures are labeled as conservative estimates by the World Health Organization and in fact may only be the tip of the iceberg to those actually infected with AIDS. Since the advent of AIDS, there have been hundreds of experimental treatments tested on HIV positive patients in an effort to combat the disease and to strengthen the immune system. The most publicized of these treatments and the first drug actually approved for AIDS is azidothymidine or AZT, also known as retrovir or zyduvidine, which was approved by the Food and Drug Administration and was distributed worldwide by a British-based manufacturer, Burroughs Welcome. AZT was designed in the 60s um, as a drug against cancer and it was tested and found not to be very effective and um, to be toxic. So they left it on the shelf for years and years and then when they were screening drugs against HIV, they found out that uh, AZT and the whole family of drugs behind AZT uh, block an enzyme that is necessary for the virus to infect new cells. So they started using it uh, in patients around 1985, that's when they first put it in people, and then in 1987 it was approved. The basis for using this therapy was simple. It was thought that as HIV depends on DNA synthesis for multiplication and AZT terminates DNA synthesis, AZT should stop the AIDS-infected cells from multiplying and thereby halt the progression of the virus. People were making claims that it was the medicine, uh, that it was secure, well not the cure, but at least a control that we were looking for. Uh, a lot of the people in the HIV community jumped on the bandwagon. Um, you've got to understand that this was until about 85, 87 that this drug came about. The disease had already been ravaging the world for five years at least that we know of. People were desperate. On June 1st, 1992, DDI, or didanazine, was approved by the FDA for use amongst AIDS patients who were previously using AZT. DDI had already been accepted for use on September 29, 1991 for AIDS sufferers, but was only available to those who could not tolerate the toxic effects of AZT. Soon after, DDC or zalcitabine, another similar drug, was introduced. Both of these treatments are currently being prescribed to AIDS patients singularly or in combination with AZT. Well, here at the UCLA Care Center, we've been involved in clinical trials of a number of antivirals. Uh, the majority of antiviral studies that we've uh, been involved in have been with the so-called nucleoside analogs. This is a group of drugs such as AZT, DDI, and DDC. Uh, these studies were sponsored by the National Institutes of Health 
through a program called the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, of which we're one of 44 centers uh, around the country conducting trials in both adult and pediatric HIV patients. Well, there's basically, uh, I think, uh, three kinds of trials when people talk about trials. W one is uh, the basic university-based strict trials that have a few people in them. And then there's the more, uh, there's community-based trials, which I'd be more directly involved in. And then there's informal trials where we may say, look, we'd like to try and prevent uh, toxo in our patients, which is an infection that a lot of AIDS patients get. And we want to try this drug that's been on the market for years to see if it prevents toxo. And so that's a kind of an informal trial. So all three are going on in a, in a community-based practice like this. In most cases where a drug is, in fact, going to be found to be useful, uh, those early observations should then lead to more rigorous scientific evaluation of the drug, uh, which will prove definitively that that drug is useful. When a new drug comes out, something that's never been tried in a human being before, it's got to go through the traditional process as fast as it can. But it still takes a while because you've got to start with a phase one study, which means you take a drug that's never been given to somebody, and you have to give it in a very small dosage to somebody. You have to wait a week and give it to somebody else, and wait another week and give it to somebody else at a higher dosage. And that can literally take a year to see what's the maximum tolerated dose. And that's called a phase one study. It doesn't tell you whether the drug works or not. It just tells you if people can tolerate it, what's the maximum dose, and if there's any major side effects. If it looks like it's safe and people can tolerate it, and you've got some idea what the maximum dose is, then you take a few different doses of the drug in a phase two study and give it to several hundred people or maybe a hundred people and start trying to figure out if it works. But, but it still takes about a year or so to figure out if something works. Uh, this is a very slow disease. Um, the average person takes about 12 years to develop AIDS from the date of infection, if, even if they don't get treatment. If they get treatment, it's a lot longer. So obviously it takes a while to see if something makes a difference versus a sugar pill. The FDA requires that a drug be found to be safe and effective before they'll license it for general use. Um, in order to do that, a drug would have to get through phase one and through phase two testing. It doesn't necessarily have to go through phase three testing, but in general, phase three testing are initiated uh, before the drug is licensed. So that at some point we'll have some data to compare the drug in question with standard treatment. Okay? Um, it typically takes, uh, for most drugs, about five to six years from the time the phase one studies are initiated to the time a drug is licensed. Um, and overall it may take 10 to 12 years from the time a drug is discovered till the time of it, that it's licensed. Um, the FDA has, has made a very concerted effort to try to speed up this process, specifically for drugs um, uh, that are useful in AIDS and cancer and other life-threatening diseases. Uh, but it still is a very long and involved process, uh, and the reason is that we need to be sure that a drug is not only safe but effective, and that we're not giving drugs to patients that have no activity or they may cause harm. There have been hundreds of protests all over the United States and throughout the world. These demonstrations have forced many reforms within the FDA and in particular have assisted in accelerating the approval process for drugs such as DDI. In the old days, before AIDS activism, um, phase two study was done with 100, 200, 300 people. And if it looked like it worked in that study, then they went to a phase three trial, which would go to maybe 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000 patients. 
and you'd watch the drug for a couple years and again verify that it was working. What the AIDS activists have done is to change that so that if a drug looks promising in a phase two study, it's released. So recently they, they passed new laws that changed the approval process for drugs for life-threatening diseases like AIDS, cancer, and others. And it takes less time. I mean, they have, the, the drug company has to present less evidence of efficacy. Then what is granted is a conditional approval, meaning the drug is put on the market so that people can benefit of it. But um, at the, when the drug is put on the market, the drug company has to keep doing studies. And then one year down the line or two years down the line, the FDA will re-examine the drug and grant definitive approval or withdraw the drug from the market. It's a conditional approval, conditional on further studies. And this is, this, I mean, this is very, very, very important for people with HIV because um, a lot of people have already tried AZT, DDI, DDC, everything. They have no more options. And as we bring new drug quickly, they can try it. And at the same time, well, I mean, they try it and they, they will give us the information to know whether the drugs are working. But people who have no other options are willing to take the risk. Uh, obviously, uh, with any kind of new drug, you're putting patients at risk for side effects. Uh, some of them we know, or we suspect we know what, what they might be from animal studies. But in other cases, the side effects that we see may be completely unexpected. Uh, for example, uh, the problem with pancreatitis with DDI uh, was completely unexpected until they got to clinical testing in man. Uh, similarly, um, one can't pre cannot predict uh, whether a drug will induce peripheral neuropathy based on animal studies or, or laboratory studies. Um, so whenever you, you test these drugs in people, you're putting patients, obviously, at risk uh, for these side effects, some of which may be very serious and life-threatening. To date, the following toxicities have been documented on AIDS patients who have taken AZT. Bone marrow depletion causing life-threatening anemia, severe headaches, nausea, muscular pain, pancreatitis, obstruction of the DNA synthesis process in some cases, and peripheral neuropathy. Although AZT is found to contain numerous toxicities, it is still widely prescribed to AIDS patients and just recently has commenced clinical testing in combination therapy with drugs such as DDI and DDC. ACT, DDI, DDC are all drugs in the same family of chemicals. So they are all drugs developed for cancer in the 60s and screened against HIV. And DDC was found to have an activity against HIV. And at first they tested it by itself, just giving DDC to people. And what they found out is that it doesn't work very well by itself. It's, it's not very toxic, however its efficacy is, is limited. So what they've thought about doing is to put AZT and DDC together and see whether two drugs would be better. Because when you use two drugs like two antibiotics, you know, it's, it's very common practice, um, you can give less of each, so you have less toxicity. But because you give two drugs, um, if the virus becomes resistant to one drug, the other one will take care of it. When the virus figures out a way around AZT, there's AZT resistance then DDI or DDC can get in there and work. DDI by itself seems to work pretty well. So DDI was approved by itself. However, because they didn't have too much data on people starting with DDI, they had data on people who had tried AZT for a while and then shifted to DDI. They approved DDI only for people who had taken AZT before. 
but as we accumulate new data right now about people who start their treatment with DDI, um, I think that DDI is going to be approved for anyone at any time. One study responsible for the introduction of DDI was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on August 27, 1992. The study indicated that DDI was superior in decreasing the secondary infections related to the virus. However, another study published in Current Science on the 2nd of September 1992 described how DDI was causing pancreatitis and peripheral neuropathy in AIDS patients, some of which were so severe as to be life-threatening. DDC, the third major drug approved for AIDS, is also found to have severe side effects similar to DDI, its main one being peripheral neuropathy, which causes numbness, tingling, and severe pain in the hands and feet. There have been hundreds of alternative therapies which have been tested on AIDS patients since the discovery of the HIV virus. These range from herbal preparations to chemotherapy drugs. One drug which has shown early signs of inhibiting the HIV virus is D4T, which was given limited approval by the FDA on the 9th of October 1992. This drug, which is said to suppress a vital enzyme that HIV requires for growth, was the first drug made available via the expanded access program, previously known as the parallel track mechanism. This process, created by the Department for Health and Human Services, permits people with a life-threatening illness to access experimental treatments. Default is another one of, of these DDI, DDC, AZT, same family. Um, however, it seems to be as efficacious as DDI with the toxicity, the low toxicity of DDC. So, so far, it's the, the best ratio effectiveness over uh, toxicity that we have. That's why it makes it a, a promising drug. It seems that almost every day a new drug or therapy is introduced, which is said to show promise in combating this epidemic. In some cases, physicians are conducting their own clinical trials on AIDS patients, even though these treatments have not been legally approved. There's a lot of, like I said, unofficial studies going on. Uh, many of us feel that common infections like Mycobacterium avium, which is one of the common, most common infections in AIDS now, and we call it MAI, or toxoplasmosis, which is a parasitic infection in the brain. We think that those diseases are, are very preventable. Um, in fact, I haven't had a patient get toxo in the past three years because we can identify the patients that have been exposed to this parasite, and if their T-cells fall to a low level, we put them on a medicine that's readily available already by prescription, and usually it prevents infection. Now, that's not an official study, Right. And those official studies are going on, but in the meantime, while we're getting the data, we can give something that looks promising to a patient, and lo and behold, in some cases, it looks like it works. Well, I don't think we'll ever get away from doing clinical trials, because uh, it's the best way, in my opinion, uh, it's the best way that we have to determine that a drug is, in fact, safe and effective in people. You can do lots of studies in animals, you can do lots of test tube studies, um, but these will just demonstrate that the drug has some activity. Uh, in order to prove that it really is effective, you have to treat patients. To date, the most common clinical trials being conducted in the U.S. on seropositive patients are injected alpha interferon, AZT, DDI, AZT, DDI, DDC combinations, D4T, GLQ-223, or compound Q.
Ultimately, what this disease is going to isn't a cure necessarily around the corner, but making it a chronic manageable illness. And that's what the difference between 1981 and 1993 is. So 1993, HIV has become a much more chronic manageable illness. It's similar to diabetes. If a, if a child gets diabetes today, they don't live to be 75.2 years old. Uh, they, they usually die younger than somebody who doesn't have diabetes. And if we could change the natural history of HIV where somebody, instead of getting sick in 12 years, got sick in 30 years, that would be monumental and that would be close to a cure. And I think that's the direction we're going in. Well, um, if you ask me to look into my crystal ball, um, what I see coming down the pike is uh, a large number of drugs, some of which will prove to be useful as others of which will, will not be useful. And that, uh, at least in the next five years or so, we'll find drugs that are more effective, perhaps less toxic than currently available therapy. And we'll be able to prolong the lives of AIDS patients several fold. The later things being approved, um, recently two drugs have been approved. One which increase appetite in people with HIV, which is a big problem because um, nutrition makes a hell of a difference, okay? When people have a good diet, they do much better, okay? Um, but the problem is that very often people with HIV, especially if they are taking AZT, their appetite is really low and they are not, you know, feeding themselves well. So there's this new drug called Marinol, which is uh, THC, the good old THC in a pill, you know, put in a pill, uh, that has been approved. Uh, another drug that's been approved is called rifabutin, which is a drug to prevent MAI, this mycobacterium infection I was talking about, which is another good point. And it's another, we have already like three or four of them that are good to, to prevent that. 1985, we discovered the virus, okay? And then in 1987, 88, we started discovering things like the protease enzyme or the TAT gene. And so for, for us to have a drug that's being tested in humans three years later is pretty remarkable for something we didn't even know existed. And so the learning curve is there. We, now we know about the disease, we know about the virus, and now we're starting to see the, the, the fruits of labor of knowing those things in terms of treatments.